unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Bejnov. For all their managing of the narrative and meddling with the politics, the powers lurking behind the scenes in Pakistan underestimated the PTI's popularity with the electorate. And what has followed is chaos. Pakistanis tuned into their news channels were watching their democracy being managed in real time. of the UN High Commission for Human Rights. Some observers believe the biggest threat to Pakistan's democracy is the military. The army has ruled the nation for about half of its existence since Pakistan was formed back in 1947. And critics claim the military has already decided who will win power this time. The February 8th elections have been marred by violence, mobile disruptions and delayed results. Serious rigging allegations have also been leveled by major political parties, throwing the country into further political turmoil. And what the army wants, the army, the army usually gets in Pakistan, but these elections, I think, have seen a very significant... Candidates backed by the imprisoned opposition leader Imran Khan have won the most seats in parliament, though they fell short of a majority. Khan supporters gathered outside the election commission in Karachi. They say vote rigging in Thursday's balloting denied them enough seats to form a government by themselves. Three-time Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, whose party... Last Thursday, voters in Pakistan went to the polls in the country's first general election since the July 2018 election that brought former Prime Minister Imran Khan to power. In 2022, Khan was ousted in an unprecedented no-confidence vote and now finds himself behind bars. His political party, the PTI, was repressed with party members jailed, harassed, and eventually forced to contest the 2024 elections as independents. The military, widely seen as the guiding force behind these moves, appeared to put its faith in another former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. The election results appear to have caught the military and perhaps many Pakistanis by surprise. At last count, independents backed by Khan's PTI emerge as the single largest bloc, capturing 93 seats. To talk about the election and what it means for Pakistan and the region, I'm joined today by Zoha Wasim. Zoha is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick, and as of this month, a non-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. She's the author of Insecure Guardians, Enforcement, Encounters, and Everyday Policing in Postcolonial Karachi. I'm pleased to welcome her to the show for the very first time. Zoha, good to see you. Thanks so much, Milan. Thank you so much for having me here. It's nice to be here and a very exciting time to be talking about the elections in Pakistan. In, indeed. I, I want to start, before we get to the here and now, by rewinding a bit. In 2018, PTI, the party of former cricket superstar, heartthrob, celebrity Imran Khan, emerged as the single largest party in parliament following that year's general elections. PTI would go on to form a coalition government with Khan as its prime minister. But just four years later, Imran Khan became the first prime minister in Pakistan, ousted by a parliamentary vote of no confidence. So just to kind of refresh our memory here, tell us a little bit about who Imran Khan is and what led to his ouster back in 2022. Sure. Um, so basically, as I think is now well known, uh, Imran Khan was uh, brought uh, in as prime minister in 2018 elections, which were also uh, allegedly uh, rigged uh, to bring him into power. And he came with the patronage of the Pakistan army, uh, the all-powerful army. Um, and then almost two two years ago, I think, in, um, in yeah, so Imran Khan became the first 
prime minister in Pakistan's history to be removed uh, in, a, in a vote of no confidence. But of course, certainly not the, the only prime minister to be removed from office before uh, the term was completed. Uh, as is now well known, no Pakistani prime minister has ever completed their, their term in office uh, thanks to the military's interventions and interferences. Um, very simply, his fallout with the military, uh, you know, sort of led to his ouster uh, two years ago. And th this project Imran, as it's now popularly known, um, it, it was initially designed by the by the military establishment. It's said to keep Khan in power for some say about 10 years at least, uh, so that he would remain loyal and compliant to the military and on the same page with the military. But this so-called unholy marriage of convenience, this unholy alliance, as people call it, um, it fell apart faster than could have been predicted. And differences began to emerge uh, between Khan and his patrons in, in the army for a number of reasons. Firstly, there were differences over Khan's uh, governance choices, primarily in Punjab and the way he was managing domestic affairs and provincial affairs in, uh, you know, in bureaucracies and other domestic institutions. He was considered to be a bad leader. His uh, his governance was, uh, you know, was quite problematic. He was not very, him and his government led by PTI were not very imp uh, interested in, in, in implementing policy changes and reforms. They were more interested in anti-corruption investigations and less interested in stabilizing the economy. Um, so that was one of the reasons. Uh, the second was that the then uh, the then army command general Bajwa um, and Imran Khan differed over foreign policy. Uh, Imran Khan was vehemently anti-America and anti-India in his stance, but Bajwa, it said, wanted a more conciliatory approach with India, and he wanted to maintain ties with the U.S., especially in a climate when the U.S. was leaving, uh, was um, losing interest in Afghanistan and Pakistan. They wanted to maintain some kinds of ties with with the uh, with America. But Khan was increasingly intent on pushing this anti-America and anti-India narrative in the country, which was becoming very popular and making things very difficult for the military command. And then third, and most importantly, the reason that the, that led to the, the ultimate fallout is that Khan became quite confident uh, and and began meddling in in the army's internal affairs. Um, and as the as the you know the story goes, he wanted to influence the appointment of the then DGISI, the the you know Interservices Intelligence Agency, the the premier H, uh, intelligence agency of Pakistan. He wanted to influence the uh, appointment of its chief Fez Hamid. Um, he wanted Fez Hamid to continue as DGISI, uh, and because Fez was allegedly one of the people who brought Khan, uh, facilitated Khan's rise to power. But Bajwa, on the other hand, wanted to remove Hamid, um, and Khan was blocking those attempts. Uh, and I think this profoundly angered the, the the army's high command, and thus the initial the the tears became quite the tears in the, on the same page relationship became quite evident and quite problematic. And with these cracks emerging, uh, the PMLN and you know People's Party, the Pakistan Muslim League known and People's Party of Pakistan, um, they had by now also formed an alliance, uh, a sort of a coalition known as Pakistan Democratic Movement or PDM, and they found uh, you know as this this relationship between Khan and the army. Was uh, was rupturing. They found an opening for themselves, an opportunity to kind of become more presentable and palatable to the, to the military at that time, and they began presenting themselves as better alternatives, more compliant alternatives than Khan. Um, so, you know, these sort of things happened simultaneously: Khan and the establishment falling out, and the formation of PDM, and then began the the plan to remove Khan from office, uh, which led to these conversations around the vote of no confidence, dating back to actually 2021. But then those materialized in April 2022, which with, with the army's blessings, um, which finally led to Khan's removal from office, and his you know his coalition partners abandoned him. Um, there were defections from Khan's uh, uh, Pakistan Tehreek-e-Insaf, his political party, and those uh, defections 
elections led to members uh, joining other political parties, including PMLN and Pe- People's Party of Pakistan. So the series of you know uh, events eventually led to his ouster, uh, and thus also began a, a sequence of cases and charges being launched at Imran Khan, uh, and eventually leading to his arrest and imprisonment. And that's where he is today. So. After he was booted from office, Khan was arrested. He was later convicted on graft charges. Just a few weeks ago, he was convicted in a separate case alleging that he violated the country's Official Secrets Act by leaking the contents of a diplomatic cable shortly before he was forced out as prime minister in 2022. What do we know about the charges and how much basis is there for them? Uh, that's a great question because there's there's so many cases right now. And as I, as I understand, the last count said that there was an estimated 150 plus charges against Khan uh, that have been launched since over the last uh, couple of years, actually. Um, but I'm not going to go over all 100 of them. I'll just mention a few of the main ones that are essentially being used to keep Khan entangled in you know Pakistan's legal and judicial system um, and that are keeping him in prison and very much uh, out of sight and out of mind uh, with, with the hope that he will sort of drop out of uh, the public consciousness to a certain degree. The first of it, as you mentioned, is, is called the Cypher case, or it's known as colloquially as the Cypher case. Uh, and it concerns very much, uh, you know, this, this classified cable or diplomatic correspondence that was sent to Islamabad from Washington, D.C., the contents of which Khan made public and sort of waved, allegedly waved the, that paper in the air um, at a public gathering. And he said that Cypher, that cable, the diplomatic correspondence was proof of uh, an American conspiracy against uh, Khan, um, American conspiracy that was helping the military to move Khan from from power. Um, and then the case is essentially that that revealing the contents of the cipher of this cable um, goes again is is in other words revealing state secrets. Um, and thus, under the Official Secrets Act, in a closed door trial, um, it's uh, he has been sentenced to ten years imprisonment. Uh, I should mention the Official Secrets Act is a colonial era legislation and very pro- problematic. And his legal team do have a a, a right to appeal. Um, and there's an understanding that, you know, through the appeals process, the decision may eventually go in their favor. But how long that takes, we're not sure. That's one of the cases. And then the, the few others that are worth mentioning, the second is known as as is the Gifts case or the Tosha Khana case, uh, which is basically, uh, you know, allegations and charges leveled against Khan that he has taken state gifts worth millions, him and his wife both, um, which he cannot legally do and, and sold them. Um, so they both, him and his wife have both been awarded jail terms for selling these state gifts. Um, but again, that case is likely going to be appealed as well. And the third and most problematic, the one I think that has gotten the civil society most agitated, uh, you know, against this repression towards directly towards Khan, is known as the Iddat case, which is very much about the period of divorce, um, uh, you know, the Bush and, and Bushra Bibi's uh, uh, marriage with Imran Khan, and whether it's even um, valid because uh, you know Islamically there's supposed to be a period of time known as the Iddat period that's supposed to pass before a divorced woman can marry another man and uh, you know it, it's a, the theory goes that that period had not passed so on islamic grounds they're sort of trying to make this case i don't think it's going to hold either and i think there's there's a lot of anger civil society is very angry that this case has been brought 
But I should say that all of these case studies are kind of working together to sort of uh, uh, challenge this perception of Khan as as a legitimate leader for Pakistan, right? I think that there's, even though none of them will necessarily hold uh, in the near future and they will all be challenged and eventually the charges may be dropped due to lack of evidence, but what they are doing is that they're creating a certain narrative, a certain picture of Imran Khan, right? The 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 gifts case or the um the Tosha Khana case is supposed is is trying to project him as being financially corrupt. The uh, Iddat case is trying to project him as morally corrupt and religiously, you know, sort of questionable of questionable character. And then the the third one, the Cipher case, uh, is is trying to uh, present him as being a threat to the nation and to national security. So I think these narratives have been really important, and that's that that's why they're kind of, kind of the cases are kind of coming in quick succession to present Khan as this, you know, as, as a problematic figure and somebody who should just be dropped out of public, public conversation and consciousness. And I think that's what the uh, establishment is trying to do via the legal route and via the, the judiciary. So if you look at the past year, many PTI supporters have been arrested. Party leaders have been coerced into giving up their positions. The party was deemed ineligible to use its electoral symbol uh, in these elections. Uh, its candidates were, were forced to stand as independents. You know, the simplest explanation, I think the one that is widely uh, circling on uh, on the media and social media is that the military simply decided Khan was a danger to the country. It was, Khan was a danger to its interests. Now, this is obviously the simplest explanation. Do we think it's the correct one? I think to a degree, uh, that is what the establishment is trying to project Khan as, right? As a, And they've kind of uh, seen Khan to become quite problematic for themselves. I think that he was ultimately uh, raised to be a populist leader, and then he became somebody who was undermining the army's position uh, in the country and was weakening the position and status vis-a-vis -vis the civilian leadership. And I think, therefore, what we have seen in the past couple of years, from the vote of no confidence to the elections uh, of these of, over the past few days, uh, is an interesting timeline of events uh, unfolding. As you say, like there's been a a, a strategic uh, kind of a, you know a situation of creating an unequal playing field um, uh, by the military and the establishment to delegitimize Khan and present him as a as a threat and a danger to national interest and national security. Um, and it's created a very repressive and non-democratic environment in the country. So, as you said, you know, it sort of starts from the vote of no confidence when he's booted out of office, uh, even though in the by-elections in Punjab, he sweeps, uh, you know, he sweeps uh, the, uh, in those by-elections. Um, but at the same time, you know, cases begun, begin start, you know, uh, coming against Khan and charges are being leveled against him. First, starting with the anti-terrorism law, and then later, uh, eventually, he's disqualified from running for office uh, for five years. And then there's there's been a the number of attempts to arrest him, and then eventually uh, in the in the anti-corruption case uh, of this um, uh, of, of a land, it was a case against a, a land being um, sort of bought, I think. Um, and in that in that case, he's um, he's eventually arrested on May 9th, which is when we see um, you know uh, protests and and violence and and agitation on the streets, and the visuals are quite alarming, and his supporters are very angry, and there's an unprecedented uh, you know. Uh, violence that's that's an anger shown towards military directed at military installations uh in within Pakistan and it gives the army a perfect excuse a perfect reason and opportunity to unleash their wrath and unleash their vengeance against PTI and PTI supporters and we see the leaders are being arrested the supporters are being arrested including women on very trumped up charges many are jailed many are tortured many defect from the party uh they start appearing on television channels saying that they are either joining another party or they're leaving 
PTI because of this so-called terrorism that they saw on May 9th, uh, or they're just leaving, you know, politics for, for good. Um, and so you see that PTI, the party is then systematically dismantled, uh, and an environment of fear and intimidation is created in Pakistan in the summer of 2023. There was a period before that when it actually became quite okay for, um, you know, members of the civil society and analysts and journalists to speak against the military even and to name and shame uh, and to, you know, call out uh, army leaders on, on TV and otherwise. But in this period of repression following May 9th, we see that that becomes impossible to do. And there's a categorical, uh, a strategic kind of, uh, you know, situation created that it becomes very difficult to criticize the military and talk about them very openly. And then eventually Khan is sentenced to to, uh, to prison on grounds of corruption. Um, and that becomes one of like 150 cases, as I mentioned, against Khan. And creates a very good environment for Nawaz Sharif to return to Pakistan also, uh, which is something that happens, I think, a few months after May 9th. And he returns to, uh, you know, to Pakistan and the stage is set for the next elections. And gradually what we also see is that while on the one hand, the, these cases are mounting against Khan, on the other hand, the cases against Nawaz Sharif began to be, begin to be dropped by the courts. Um, and then in January, uh, you know, uh, in January, more recently, uh, the Supreme Court scraps the lifetime ban on politicians, which allows, which clears the way for Nawaz Sharif to contest the elections. Um, and then the, in, you know, to just talk about the, the most, a little bit more about how the, the, the unequal playing field was created, um, in, in January. So it's just a few, a few weeks ago in the days leading up to the elections. We see another case of, of int concerning intra-party elections within PTI, which then lead to the, the symbol, the cricket bat, uh, the sim party symbol of PTI being taken away, effectively banning Pakistan's Tariqa and Insaf from contesting the elections. Um, so yes, there, there was, there's been a concerted effort to undo Project Imran and perhaps pave the way for another hybrid compact in the country, um, with, with the, you know, with, with the Sharifs back in government and People's Party, uh, also present there. I should also mention on the question of whether Khan was a danger to the army. So there was this one, you know, uh, one potential danger he posed by becoming this populist and very pop, a pop, very popular leader, um, who was really resonating with the youth of the country and, 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 and across, uh, across, uh, class as well. Um, but then there's also the danger of the kind of uh, popularity he held within the ranks, within the ranks of the army itself. So not just in public consciousness, but also how he was very popular uh, within the military itself. And that that support that, the, that Khan held within and across the ranks within the army meant that he could influence matters internal to the Pakistan military, um, which became quite problematic because the military has always viewed uh, civilian politicians as these corrupt civilians so having somebody who could place checks and interfere in, in the army's internal matters was seen as a red line that no civilian politician can cross. And I think that's when it, it was decided that Khan had to go. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I want to just kind of bring this story up to the present to Election Day. Um, you know, the day was, to sort of put it in very blunt terms, kind of a hot mess, right? I mean, there was a, there was a blanket shutdown of all mobile phone networks. The election results were delayed by many hours. There were all sorts of allegations about vote rigging, about various and sundry dirty tricks. 
I'd love to just hear your thoughts. So just on a kind of personal level, you know, as you saw Election Day in Pakistan unfold, sort of, you know, what was your mindset like? I mean, it was definitely a grand tamasha, right? And it was definitely, <laughs> it was very exciting. I think that it was also exciting because initially in the lead up to the polls, there was this idea that people weren't interested, you know, that there was the momentum, you know, the kind of uh, the energy that should be, uh, you know, leading up to elections and the excitement, it wasn't there. Um, which, you know, which which made people seem quite disheartened and think that voters are not going to turn out and this is already set and everything is very engineered and the stage has been managed for Nawaz Sharif to come back. And then once the results start coming in, the initial counting begins, the excitement comes because you're suddenly seeing that this is not going as predicted, right? This was certainly not going as per the military's plans and everyone's appearing very nervous. Everyone's reading of the events leading up to the elections is completely out the window and everyone has to kind of start from scratch and figure out what has, what has happened, right? Um, so I think that, you know, it, it, certain, certain things were very interesting to watch. One, there was certainly a low voter turnout. Uh, in in a lot of uh, constituencies, and what what that what that was supposed to mean was that if there was a low voter turnout, it would work it would work against PTI's favor. It would work against Imran Khan. But actually, we saw that there was significant support, even though there was a low voter turnout, and it was made by because you see, like when the party symbol was banned, a lot of confusion was created about. Who, who, you know, which candidate you should be voting for and what's their symbol, right? And to make, make things further difficult for the voter on the day, um, the internet was shut down, mobile services were shut down, so, so shut down. So people could not, did not necessarily know always where they're supposed to be going and where their polling stations were located. Coordination became very difficult. So they tried to kind of make things very difficult on the day and they were very confident that voters are not going to be able to cast their vote for PTI and Khan, but that's not the way it went. A lot of PTI, uh, as you said, 93 or 95, uh, of PTI affiliated candidates are now sort of, uh, have been, have, have won. Um, and this is in spite of the kind of environment of Depression, and you know, uh, this is in spite of the fact that media were denied access to polling stations, observers were denied access to polling stations. So I think that you know there was quite a bit of surprise and shock on the day, and people were quite stunned. Um, and everybody has said that perhaps the army and the military did not uh, anticipate this. They thought that um, every all you know the, the various repressive tactics and censorship leading up to the day would deter the voter, uh, but I think that was not necessarily the case. Um, so all predictions were challenged on the day, and even though there was an unequal playing field, I think that PTI supporters uh, just and PTI workers found a way to kind of be very creative and improvise uh, on the day and be able to kind of, uh, you know, come out in favor of Imran Khan and also show that they were quite frustrated with these um, with these cases and, and what the army was trying to do uh, to kind of delegitimize Khan, uh, delegitimize uh, Imran Khan was not necessarily working. So I want to kind of separate out analytically two things, right? Because on uh, on the one hand, what you had and what you described so well in the weeks and months leading up to the election was a kind of fixing of the playing field, right? You basically kind of place your thumb on the scales in order to kind of bring Imran Khan and his party down and maybe, you know, uh, do other things to to prop up uh, Nawaz Sharif and the PMLN and, and, and other sort of traditional mainstream political parties. That clearly didn't work, uh, but um, there are many allegations out there about uh, actual vote rigging uh, on the day of elections. Can you tell us about how credible those allegations are? Um, and you know, uh, you know, is this still a source of controversy in, in, in Pakistan today, several days after the election? 
Absolutely. I think uh, uh, there's been massive uproar against that. And and I mean, I mean, I think the uh, the powers that be are trying to get Pakistan to kind of move on from it. And the Elections Commission and the Chief of Army stuff has basically said, accept the results, move on, uh, be, you know, be happy with what the Election Commission is saying. But I think you're seeing um, a lot of pushback from the media, a lot of pushback from the legal fraternity as well. Uh, because a lot, several of the um, independent candidates that were running with uh, with BTS were, were law- are lawyers as well, and they will be contesting these results in courts. I think it was very suspicious that um, I think there was a certain time by which the election commission was supposed to release the results, uh, and that got delayed substantially. And I think uh, there was it was very unclear why that was delayed, why the why the sort of releasing the results were delayed. There were, there's been lots of reports about um, uh, ROs, the officers who are responsible for collating the results, meddling, uh, and and you know changing um, changing forms, changing the number the number of votes, uh, and just generally sort of you know delaying uh, the you know presenting the results. And then you see you know the way the numbers begin shifting over time after hours of delay. Um, so I think there was certainly, um, you know, a concerted effort and people are not, I mean, generally, I wouldn't say none of the elections are, you know, have in Pakistan have been completely free from rigging and certain external interventions. But I think this one particular just became really difficult because of social media, because of everyone just sort of coming out and, you know, sort of watching how uh, Imran Khan would be taken down and what would happen with his party. I think it's become very difficult to hide uh, and sort of, you know, overcome allegations of rigging. I mean, I guess there's a question here, Zoha, about how surprised we should be. I mean, because it seemed like if you were reading the press, the conventional wisdom was, you know, this is a done deal. The repression of the PTI is going to work out. Um, These traditional heavy weights will be propped up one way or another. Um, But yet at the same time, there was there were clearly signs of this kind of undercurrent of popular support for Imran Khan. I mean, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, how we sort of miss this electoral earthquake. Did we just think that the fixing of the playing field would have been more competently or more effectively managed? Yeah, I think this is something that analysts and academics both will be studying for a while. Like what what exactly happened, you know, in, in these elections and how did we get here? What did we miss? Uh, and I think there's a number of a number of reasons um, that we can think about or or speculate, right? I think firstly, uh, we may have underestimated uh, the resilience of Khan supporters. We may we I think everybody thought that in a climate of fear and intimidation, they're not going to come out. Uh, and if they're you know confused enough, if you know family members have been picked up, um, if if there's if they've been censored enough, Khan's name cannot be taken on on television. Uh, his speeches are censored. You know, there's so much. There's so many ways in which the, the establishment had tried to kind of uh, you know suppress uh, any kind of support for Khan. I think in that environment, we thought that the voters would um, would would not trust the system enough to even cast their vote. But I think that was not the case. I think that they underestimated uh, Imran Khan's pull and, and attraction and the way that he inspires young voters in a way that PMLN has not been able to do. Um, I think we also underestimated uh, Khan's voters and supporters' uh, creativity and improvisation, right? Uh, in, the, in, in spite of this repression, they found ways of using mobile phone applications to inform their voters where to go on the day of the polls. Um, they, they found ways of communicating 
working with their voters using you know artificial intelligence and and other other sort of so, and other things on social and other tactics on social and digital media so i think that you know what the establishment was trying to do is you know keep him away from the public eye but pti's supporters and members and and workers were really crafty and creative in how to keep the conversation going and keeping Khan in, you know, inspiring, allowing Khan to keep inspiring voters on the day of the polls. And then the second explanation, perhaps, is that the military overplayed its hand. Um, I think the army thought that using so much suppression, using all these cases uh, to delegitimize Khan would work in its favor. But I think at some point it started backfiring. And I think, you know, the Iddat case was certainly one of them is when people were just like, this was such a private matter and it was it should not have been, you know, discussed in this way on, on television or in the courts. I think I think those the quick succession in which the cases and, um, and you know, were, were brought to courts and were, were and verdicts were passed. I think people began seeing seeing through that a little bit, right? They began seeing through that this kind of management and engineering that was happening. And I think that that, you know, the, that did not work in the army's favor a little bit. And people were not able to endorse what the army was doing in in good conscience. And then third, um, I think that the use of, uh, I think I think PMLN and Nawaz also overestimated and became too confident in how popular they were, right? They did not campaign uh, in the elections very proactively. They did not necessarily instill confidence in their voters. Um, they failed to rep- to present alternatives uh, beyond the Sharif family. So they you know, sort of kept playing uh, up this dynastic politics. We started hearing about how it will be either Nawaz Sharif will be prime minister or Shabazz Sharif will be with Mariam Nawaz sort of also being positioned as as taking a key um you know a key position in the Punjab uh, provincial assembly as potentially she's started to be the next chief minister of Punjab so i think that did not really appeal to the urban voter and the the young voter and i think uh, Nawaz Noonli was not able to kind of um uh, calculate that properly and they overestimated um uh, how 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 much uh, power they and uh, they overestimated their own position Uh, in Punjab and in the country. So I want to ask you about this issue of dynastic politics, uh, which you alluded to earlier. Pakistan, much like its neighbor India, has a long history of dynastic politics. In fact, it's quite a hallmark of South Asian politics writ large. Many of the major political parties in India represent family firms. And to a degree, the same has been true in, in Pakistan, certainly with the PMLN and the Pakistan People's Party of the Bhutto family. Do you think these results represent a backlash to this sort of politics? Can we be so bold as to as to kind of make that claim? I think to a degree, perhaps, uh, I think to, on the one hand, people are quite tired of dynastic families like uh, Pakistan Muslim League and People's Party of, uh, and, and People's Party. And they're quite tired of seeing the same faces because, um, with such dynasties have also become, uh, we've seen speculations of, of, corruption and other, uh, you know, other ways in which they've been involved in, you know, um, looting the country, in, in, to put it very plainly. Um, and they had not necessarily given back to the people. So I think, I think the young voter, the urban voter especially, is quite tired of seeing this sort of this, this cycle being repeated with the same faces and their next of kin being brought, brought into power. But on the other hand, I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, you know that PTI is free from this kind of uh, this kind of dynastic politics. I think while Khan himself is not from that kind of political background, many people in PTI do belong to dynasties such as Shah Mahmud Qureshi. Um, so while you know PTI does not necessarily represent a true alternative to dynastic politics in Pakistan, uh, the result does indicate that the average voter is a little tired of dynasties such as 
People's Party and and Pakistan Muslim League. Um, but countries like Pakistan, I would say, and and you know, especially politics in countries like Pakistan, it's still based around kinship, networks of patronage, and and familial ties and familial relations. So I don't necessarily see a, a very uh, you know transformational shift away from that kind of uh, from this kind of dynastic politics playing out uh, in the current configuration of politicians and political parties in Pakistan. So I, I want to ask about one of the biggest and perhaps most difficult questions in the minds of probably listeners of this particular podcast, which is, what do these results mean, if they mean anything, for the future of India-Pakistan ties, right? It was interesting to see Indian Twitter uh, during this election day, because there was a se- sense of sort of gloating, sort of uh, kind of mockery that, you know, this election is just a disaster from start to finish. And if you could only look at, you know, uh, your bigger neighbor to the east to see how elections are run. Um, but there were other people actually cautioning against that sort of gloating, saying, look, I mean, instability in Pakistan, uh, a real rupture between uh, the civilian leadership and the military could be very dangerous. Um, you know, how do you see these results in the context of kind of the broader regional picture with the caveat that we don't know <laughs> how things are going to end? And I will, we'll, we'll probably end with that. Um, but, but what's your sense about the larger regional implications? Yeah, so I think it all really depends. It's a, it's a complicated question to answer because it all just depends on what kind of political arrangement we will be seeing in, in Pakistan and in the near future, what kind of civil military relationship are we going to be seeing in Pakistan? Who will be the next? Well, first, who will be the next prime minister, and then who will be the next eventually in a in a in a year or two, who will be the next uh, chief uh, chief of army staff, right? Um, and that configuration, that compact, will determine foreign policy and regional relations as well. Um, I I think if we see in the near future, and we can we can discuss what kind of scenarios will play out, but I think if we see a, a Sharif-led government, a government that's led by PMLN, um, that perhaps relations with India might see some improvement because PMLN and, and Nawaz Sharif in particular tends to take a more reconciliatory approach towards India. Um, similarly, you know, People's Party may be open to more diplomatic ties and arrangements with India, but it may not necessarily be open to reconciliation. Um, as we know from, from recent history, I think a year ago, um, Bilawal hasn't necessarily taken a very soft stance towards India and has called out uh, the BJP government and Prime Minister Modi in the past. Um, so I don't necessarily, that can go either way. If, if Bilal is Prime Minister, it can really, Bilawal is Prime Minister, that can go either way. Um, importantly, it, it also uh, we'll also have to see how the army chief uh, Asim Munir, uh, what kind of stance he will take against uh, India, and how much uh, you know that will influence the way uh, the foreign ministry and, and and the next government acts, because he is known to uh, the chief is known to, uh, army chief Munir is known to take a very hard line against India in the recent past. So even if a PMLN government. As, as may be the case in you know in a few days, the PMLN government may take a reconciliatory approach towards India, but Munir may not be open for to, to do that. In which case, will the next government defer to the army when it comes to uh, regional relations and matters with Afghanistan and India? I think that remains to be seen. Of course, if if in the unlikely event, I think it's looking less likely now. If a, if an Imran Khan led government or PTI led government comes uh, comes into power at at any point, uh, we are likely to see uh, you know that they will not take a friendly stance towards India because Khan does not is not has not been in the past very keen on thawing relations with India. So we will have to wait and see. I mean, it seems like if one reads the Pakistani press, the most likely scenario is that you get a kind of rehash 
of a previous coalition government, some kind of kind of marriage of convenience between the PMLN of Nawaz Sharif and the PPP of the Bhutto family. Um, these are two parties that have no love lost uh, with respect to one another, but but might uh, join forces to keep the PTA out and, of course, uh, benefit from the spoils of, of, of holding office, right, which are which are pretty immense. Um, you know, if that is indeed what happens, and I should say that you know, jockeying to to, to announce that coalition and and, and and who would get what position is already underway. Um, you know, what will the reaction of Khan supporters and 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 these PTI backed independents be? I mean, will its party members take to the streets? Could we see a real showdown? Um, uh, you know, that that could have implications for for the kind of you know, Pakistani society between this very disgruntled, uh, you know, kind of insurgent movement, political movement, uh, and the Pakistani military. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to see how things transpire over the next few days because there's currently, like we said, there's been a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. Um, People's People's Party and PMLN both are trying to coach independent candidates. Um, There have been some defections, at least one, uh, as of yesterday. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think the the last kind of analysis suggested or the prediction suggested uh, that the leadership of both parties have met and they've agreed to form some sort of a compact uh, some sort of a, a formula of a of political arrangement, as they as they're calling it, and uh, they're speculating at the moment that it might be a shared uh, power power arrangement, which might mean that you know the the, the they might we might initially see a government led by. Uh, potentially uh, uh, Pakistan's Muslim League Noon in the, for the first couple of years or perhaps three years, and then the next one being led by uh, People's Party of Pakistan or vice versa. Um, so I think I think it's pretty much established that the military wants both of these parties, both um, People's Party and Muslim League, to form the next uh, government. So we are going to be seeing some sort of a, a power-sharing formula or an agreement uh, materializing this week or in the coming days. Um, so, and I think that that leaves PTI with you know several options and several strategies. So. There has been agitation. We have, we are seeing some anger on the streets. There have been there have been protests. There has been the police have been ordered to clamp down on those protests. And I think that that's one of the strategies that PTI and and its supporters will resort to. You know, the, taking to the streets, protesting, uh, perhaps protesting for a prolonged duration as they have in the past. You know. Uh, reverting back to the days of, uh, you know, their sort of container politics or dharna politics, um, we may see we may see some of that. But at the same time, we may see um, in, at the moment they're talking. PTI is talking to uh, smaller parties with the hope that they can form a, a, a solid block uh, as an opposition in the parliament. So that's another strategy that they will, uh, you know, employ. Are likely to employ is that they sit in the parliament in opposition and exert pressure. From that, from that arena, um, this the third thing that might happen. So, in addition to the protests on the street, in addition to kind of you know them uh, forming a strong opposition in the parliament, um, what we're going to be seeing is is also the fight playing out in the legal arena, in the judiciary, right? Um, and, and because courts um, courts are going to be drawn into this into this into this sort of you know uh, conflict uh, between PTI and and the establishment, um, and we're going to be seeing several cases uh, you know being brought to courts to con- to con- test the results of these elections. So uh, we're going to see some of that also. And then finally, what we might also see is that, you know, Imran Khan and and senior PTI leadership might eventually perhaps 
uh, become more open to talks with the army as well. I wouldn't I wouldn't rule that past, even though there's there's been a fallout and they are victims of um, this new political arrangement being engineered by the army. I would not put it past Imran Khan to be open to some sort of talks or deals with the army should the time be right. But it all depends on whether whether Asim Munir or the next chief uh, will be uh, will be willing to even consider that. Um, so a lot of it depends on how how the arrangement is uh, is 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 finalized over the next weeks, and then I I reckon PTI will have a number of strategies at at its disposal, and they will they will employ many of them simultaneously. My guest on the show this week is Zoa Wasim. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick, and the author of Insecure Guardians: Enforcement Encounters and Everyday Policing in Postcolonial Karachi. Zoha, uh, I know it was a long weekend, uh, many late nights. Uh, we, there's still a lot of uncertainty about uh, what the future holds, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we mentioned on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Mira Verghese is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.